Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here, uh, joined by Dr. Berg, as we are still working to get out as much content as we can so students can work at their own pace as the semester progresses. And we are recording now on Theology 235 Romans, and we are in Chapter 15 of Romans. So we have had uh, this move from Christian doctrine to the Christian life, if we want to speak that way, uh, that took place in chapter 12. And Paul says, in view of God's mercy, uh, live your lives as, as living sacrifices or by the mercies of God to do so. And he has now covered what that means to live as, as living sacrifices, how to use one's Christian's give, Christian gifts within the congregation and with one's neighbor what love looks like, um, and it looks a lot like Christ, our relationship with the governing authorities uh, in Romans 13, so two kingdoms theology, and how love is the fulfillment of the law. Last chapter, we talked about food and dress and what we might call adiaphora, things where there's Christian freedom, and how we should interact with each other within that when we have weak consciences um, or, or those who have specific faith, specific areas where their faith is weak, and how we deal with the weak brother or sister, but also avoiding the, the tyranny of the weak brother or sister. And Paul wrapped that up by pointing out that in the end we are to act in love and remember that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Uh, chapter 15 we probably won't spend as long on. It's a, a more straightforward uh, chapter, I would say. Um, Paul is going to begin by reminding us to bear with the failings of the of the weak um, and then let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up so this remains a neighbor or a brother or sister in Christ focused uh, Christian life that that Paul is talking about and then as he likes to do he's going to go again to Christ as the example Christ did not please himself um, but rather our reproaches fell upon him and so he's going to remind us that we have the scriptures to help us navigate these things. Um, like, I can't remember if this was in one of the divine services they were testing for the supplement or what, but um, but he says, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Mm-hmm. Was that kind of after the verse of the day in one of the supplement services? Yeah, I'm not sure. Right. That sounds right. I'm not sure. Um, but this idea then that what was written in the past, what we have in the scriptures, was written for our instruction. Um, so it's it's written that we might know how we're saved, but also that we might have instruction, Christian examples of how we might carry ourselves. Um, and then notice through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Well, what is hope? Hope always rests on the promises of God that are sure and certain. Um, and he concludes that first section there, verse 7, then with, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And we think of all the, the things that Christ has done for us, loved us when we were yet his enemies, he has justified the ungodly. Um, he's given his life for us um, who are his friends, but even before we were his friends, he has been our redeemer. Um, he, we have been healed by his wounds. The scriptures are rich in examples. Um, Paul then, though, is going to highlight his ministry in the next section, so up and through up through 21, um, and talk about the uniqueness of his ministry. And Paul has ministered to the the Gentiles. And maybe, Mike, if you want to hit on or review for us just a little bit here, we'll get a change of voices. Um, maybe the origins of, of Paul's ministry, why they are unique, and then the nature of Paul's ministry. Why is it 
unique from so many of the other apostles that we think of. Uh, many of them, we know, gathered in Jerusalem, for instance, when there is the Council of Jerusalem. Yeah, so uh, before I get to Paul's uh, education and conversion, um, notice in, in the first part of 15, he's saying, Christ was, and it's kind of a weird in English, Christ became a servant to the Jews, or I think the, the Greek, if I'm looking at this note right, I forgot about this, the servant of circumcision. Um, so he fulfills the Jewish law. I mean, I, I think that's all, all part of that. But then he, he's a preacher to the Jews. And then he goes on and says, oh, just so you know, it was written in your Old Testament. This was for the Gentiles right. as well. And I shouldn't have skipped over that. Yeah. Notice how in these chapters, especially in the second half when he's dealing with um, Jew and Gentile relations, he, there's a lot of these black quotes or, or yeah. indented quotes in your Bibles from the Old Testament as he makes that case. And that flows nicely into Paul's ministry because like Paul's ministry, he was, like Jesus, he was Jewish and um, was within the Jewish system and uh, was a Jew of Jews, right? And before he becomes then um, apostle to the Gentiles. And so he's not doing anything that Jesus had not already done, right? We're told Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon. And he, he does speak to the Jewish people, if you reject me, I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm going to the Gentiles anyway. I'm for everybody. And, and just to t stop and think about that, that the, the glory of the, of the Jewish people is that the Messiah came through, through them. Uh, the glory is that everybody gets to be Jewish in that sense, that they get to follow the Jewish Messiah. It's, it's their Messiah who is the Messiah for, for everybody. So if you remember Saint, history of St. Paul, uh, before he's Paul, he is Saul, and uh, he went studied under Gamaliel, and uh, so I like to call that the. And other people have called this the. It's the Harvard of Judaism, right? I mean, he he really knew his stuff, much like Jesus did. He knew his stuff. He knew the law. He was a Jew among Jews. Um, nobody's going to go. Oh well, you went to. Oh, you went to. A, you didn't even graduate high school, or you went to a state school, or something like that. No, he was. He knew what he was doing. And if you remember, he held the coats of the men who stoned St. Stephen and then had gotten permission to go up to Damascus in Syria, outside of, of Judea and Galilee, the, uh, those two Jewish strongholds in Palestine, uh, to hunt down followers of the way, those who had followed Jesus. And so he had been zealous, right? He calls himself that. He had been zealous. He was zealous for the cause and for the Jewish religion. And so nobody is going to look at him and say his credentials were somehow lacking when it came to his zealousness for the law. But on his way to Damascus, of course, he is converted. And then we are told, oh, we don't get a lot of details. I wish we did, but he is in Arabia. And there he does his post-grad work, if you want to... Kind of talk about this analogy or is, yeah. with Jesus himself. And so he has a connection to Jesus. And though, so he's rightfully called an apostle. And we, we use that often as a technical term. A disciple is a, a follower or a student of somebody. So we can all be disciples of Christ. But we usually, not always, but we usually uh, reserve the, the name apostle for one who was sent. That's what it means, who had a connection to Jesus Christ. And so for Paul to be the quote-unquote 13th apostle, he needs to have a connection to Jesus, and he does in a supernatural way. The resurrected Lord appears to him on the way to Damascus, in a, in a certain sense, at least uh, knocks him down with his speech, knocks him down with his light and speaks to him. And then it seems 
he is tutored by Jesus in this post-grad work. And so he is an apostle who has been abnormally born, right? He was not with Jesus from the beginning like John or Peter or Matthew. Um, but he was abnormally born, but he is an apostle nonetheless, right? And so throughout his, uh, his epistles in, in various, uh, to various congregations, he is defending his apostolic credentials, right? And saying, I'm an apostle, and these other people who are maybe preaching a gospel different than mine are not an apostle. And that's so very important for us. Uh, we talked about this, I think, in, the, in the, one of our worship classes. We do believe in apostolic succession. We don't believe that there's some magical tie that goes from Peter down to Linus and all the way through, and so the pastor has to be ordained and have hands laid on by this specific per- purpose person, but we have an apostolic succession in the sense that we are built off the apostles' teachings. Why? Because they were eyewitnesses to Jesus' teaching and his resurrection. And so we have to, we are tying ourselves back to the apostolic teachings. And that was very important for Paul there as well. And so you have A, Jesus was for Jew and Gentile. B, Paul was taught by Jesus. C, Paul is sent by Jesus. And so D, it's okay then that Paul would be for both Jew and for Gentile and would be known as the apostle to the Gentiles. And he has, and, and then he also says, listen, I, just like I have been, uh, you know, teaching and, and preaching, uh, proclaiming the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem, right? The capital city of the Jews to Illyricum that, that would have included, uh, Corinth and Athens, that region at that time, that region in the Roman empire. I've, I've, Jerusalem and Athens, right. right? I mean, and that part of the world, hello, um, he is, he has been in the two biggest, uh, most important cities for those, for those Christians, especially the Gentile Christians living in the Medi- greater Mediterranean world. Um, I went to the cultural center of both Jews and Greeks and I preached and, uh, I want to get to then the New York of, of the Roman empire, which is going to be Rome. And he eventually gets there, not as he planned, um, but you can see his uh, uh, mission zeal to spread this gospel to whoever is going to listen. I don't care what ethnicity you are. Yeah, and so I think this is, um, that last note especially brings the end of Romans kind of to a head. Paul is explaining again um, why he's writing to them and why he has wanted to come to them. They are... uh, a, a congregation with a lot of Gentiles and he's be, been called to be minister to the Gentiles and his ministry has been to take the gospel uh, wherever he can take it. Mainly this is meant, as he says, not to build on someone else's foundation, usually to be the first to take it. Um, but because as a missionary, uh, he's going to be making his way, he says he hopes to be making his way to Spain. And so he says, well, I would kind of like to pop in. And I would guess there's there's plenty of uh, people who go to see Europe and they kind of do the same thing, huh, Mike? Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're going to this place on the train. We should stop at this place. And so uh, this also might be, if you're familiar with Paul's other epistles, he often will, will say, here's why I haven't been here lately because there might be some amongst them who say, well, if Paul cares so much, why hasn't he been here? And so there might have been some that Paul anticipates who would say among the Romans, he just wrote us a really long letter. And keep in mind, as I said in the first video, 
This is a really long letter for the ancient world. It's longer than most of what we have from pretty much anybody else. And uh, you can kind of imagine some smart Alex saying, well, he wrote you this big long letter, but he can't come by. You know, and uh, and so it kind of anticipates that and is saying, this is why I would like to be here. Notice also the, the issue of bringing his offering to Jerusalem comes up again as it has come up in other letters. Uh, this was something, although he's a minister to the Gentile, that was near and dear to his heart to be raising funds uh, for them. Uh, but then he does note at the end, too, you still see this tension in his ministry, this persecution that he faces, which it makes sense, again, why he appeals to the Old Testament to show just how um, Jewish, right, properly rooted in the Old Testament, his ministry to the Gentiles was. And so he says, I appeal to you, brothers, as he closes out the chapter here, by, uh, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers on my behalf that I may be delivered for the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And we're just reminded again of uh, Paul does not have an easy life as a minister of the gospel. It's one that's marked by the cross. He talks in his letters to the Corinthians about his thorn in the flesh. Um, he mentions to the Galatians that he had come to them in tribulation. Um, so we're reminded that even as, as Paul is writing this letter to him, he has concerns that are weighing heavy on his heart, um, but he's making the time to write this this rather substantial letter. Um, you know, Mike, while we're here, I do sixteen. Why don't we just talk about it, and then I can I'll maybe do a review video at, at the end for students. But uh, I sometimes feel bad with the last chapters of Paul's letters. That when I teach them, you kind of get to the last chapter and you go, now he says hi to a bunch of people, mm -hmm. and says bye. It says grace and peace. Um, I think just a couple things maybe to hit on. He names people that he has connections to in the Roman congregation or that the Roman congregation would be familiar with and have connections to um, in order to demonstrate kind of, I think here uh, in the ancient world, they didn't have, you know, uh, encrypted communication um, to demonstrate the genuineness of this letter the genuineness of his connections to the congregation. But also this was just very important in the early church for establishing the genuineness of one's ministry. Uh, because there was they didn't have the internet, it was very important to kind of be able to give your resume when you came or wrote to a church to be able to say, look, I am I am legitimate. The church has recognized my ministry as being legitimate. In our day, that may be a call sheet or ordination document hanging in a pastor's um, office. But this is the same reason, for instance, when we have an ordination in our day, the area pastors come and lay their hands on as a way of saying our church body right, says this guy's qualified. Um, he has been rightly called to, uh, to serve the, the church. Um, for the purposes of this class, I don't expect students to get... Uh, lost in very uh, deep in the various names that are mentioned here. Uh, There's some interesting things that do happen here, but I don't uh, I don't know that we have to un unpack them all for our purposes. Um, but maybe, Mike, anything that in Paul's epistles in general or that you see here that stands out about how Paul tends to bring letters to an end? Well, there's going to be, you know, sometimes we 
because either we hear them very often or they're just a part of a formula, the beginning and the ends of these letters. We take them for we granted. We take them for granted. So when we hear like, you know, peace, mercy, and grace to you, uh, maybe you've heard your pastor say that a bunch of times when he got up into, uh, into the pulpit to preach a sermon. Well, that would have actually been kind of a pretty cool thing because the ancient world, that would have been a, a, a standard way of looking at it, you know. But grace to a Christian and peace to a Christian means something different, right? And uh, at the end of Romans, um, he, he uses this one. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. There's a lot there, right? right. And I, I like the, I, I, I'm attracted to the idea of mystery um, in, in Paul's letters. Uh, what is this ministry? At one time he says, well, the mystery is Jesus Christ, right? And we, we've talked about that, how that may be, you know, even sacramental in a sense that there's one sacrament. It's actually Jesus, the mystery. Those, those words are tied together through translation histories. And uh, then there's sacramental signs, Holy Communion, Baptism, and Jesus, of course, is the word of God. He's all encompassing in that way. But the mystery that is going to be made known now, of course, is the fulfillment of the promise of the gospel from Genesis 3.15, and it's revealed in the person Jesus Christ. How is it revealed to you? Well, I, Paul, who saw and was taught by Jesus, now speak it to you. So the word of God is an unveiling. Uh, that's what a revelation is, an unveiling of this mystery. And I, I, we tend not to really appreciate the mystery mysteriousness of god and the bible and spirituality we are rational creatures living post enlightenment we think we have it all figured out right we can put all of our information into an encyclopedia or one doctrine book or it's all just there at the fingertips on our internet we don't there's no mystery to life anymore and so um to appreciate what those people wait, first of all, waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting to understand what a revelation meant. And now it's finally clear. Um, uh, or the, the idea that there are things that are lost to us that we cannot see. And when God does reveal to them that the, reveal them to us, that is a very, very big deal and a life altering thing, right? Um, we get too worked up in trying to explain uh, the real presence that it's that it's actually a legit doctrine that we forget to be in holy awe when we come up for holy communion we get worked up about making sure that we have all of our hermeneutics right the way we interpret the bible that we lose uh, the mysterious holiness of scripture um, and so we have a we have a balance there that and I think in our postmodern world, this is one of the advantages of the postmodern world that the modern world pulling itself out of a pre-modern, very often superstitious uh, way of looking at the world, let the pe pendulum in many ways swing too far to be rationalistic and, and to atomize everything, get everything down to the, to the atom, that we swing back a little bit and we see a little bit more mysterious and mysteriousness in the world. And be appreciative of that, that God is bigger than us. And so I do like that 
whenever I see the word uh, mystery, and it's just, it's almost, it's almost like a, a side note here at the end of Romans, but we shouldn't think about it that way. Every time I look at the word mystery, I start thinking about those things and, and the value of that. And then uh, just a couple interesting things as well to hit on. Uh, Rufus mentioned here uh, is to me always a, kind of a fascinating mention. Um, this uh, It's a pretty good guess that this is the son of Simon of Cyrene mm-hmm. mentioned in Mark fifteen twenty one. Is always to me Jesus cross, pretty yeah. darn cool. The son, of Rufus and Alexander, I believe, were the sons of Simon of Cyrene. And it says in the Gospels, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Rufus and Alexander. And it makes sense they'd mention that if they became Christians and they'd be familiar to the community. And so, uh, I don't know, it's pretty cool that, that, that um, Paul mentions them here. Uh, he, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Mike, any thoughts on that? Should we... Well, when I, I, when I see you tomorrow, if I see you tomorrow, I'll be serious there for a second. We we should be doing it right now. I mean, but think about a European kiss on the on the cheeks, right. like that. Uh, we 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 um, white Americans, European, especially Northern Europe. Let's say Northern European uh, Americans have been okay with this social distancing thing. Like right. this is our default position anyway. We're yeah. okay with that. Um, but other cultures would have been much more physical in that way. And so in the, in the liturgy of the early church, there would be a kiss of peace, right? A sign that we are okay with each other. And, and, uh, you know, I'm not okay with you cause I don't know what you're carrying. So I'm not going to kiss you. <laughs> All right. Um, but it, notice the connection of that greet one another with a holy kiss, which would have been a sign of fellowship, but all the churches of Christ greet you. Uh, this is a helpful reminder for congregations too, that while the congregation is important and while the, the congregations, congregations in our circles uh, in America, for many denominations, tend to be pretty congregational in focus. In polity. And yes, so, yeah. we are some part of something bigger than us. Um, we give thanks for the the, the the fellowship of the church bodies that whatever our denominations are that we are able to be a part of, um, and we get give thanks to be part of the Holy Christian Church, which is which spans not only geographic boundaries. Um, but temporal as well. And then maybe we, sh- we can just briefly hit on, um, because this does sometimes come up in connection with fellowship, um, Romans sixteen seventeen. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Uh, Mike, any thoughts? Is that, does this mean uh, you have a member who comes to you and they're having trouble understanding infant baptism? Did you, did you just kick them out on the spot? Uh, say leave. <laughs> uh, no. What are we? Ta- who are those who cause divisions? What are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, we talked about this. Was this in the Romans? Where we talked about weak and strong, right? Yeah. You know, so somebody who is weak, we want to bend over backwards for them, right? It's not like there's a test to get into heaven. You know what I mean? Um, like you have everything lined up, and those who those who arrogantly think that they have every doctrinal point down. Um, you know, I'd like to say, you know, it's one thing to be arrogant. It's one thing to be ignorant, but to be both is a lethal combination. And, uh, and this ties in with that mysteriousness too, that there's some things that we cannot do. We do the best we can. We say, Lord have mercy. When we talk about fellowship, we're talking, uh, we're talking about love. I want to love this person that they know the truth. If they become so obstinate and they're going to teach 
they have moved on from struggling to I am absolutely sure that this is this is not true or uh, I disagree with this um, and they become maybe even advocates for their position within the congregation then out of love for everybody else I have to step in and if it means excommunication it means excommunication but excommunication is an act of love I love you enough and, and that's actually I think something we can we can understand you got to get past this inclusive exclusive thing i mean you know sometimes it's it's uh loving to to stand up to somebody and i think we do appreciate that i, I think it was uh pen and teller which one uh, the big one the big dude is that pen pen that could be teller. to be honest i'm not possible <laughs> he is he is a pretty st- stringent atheist um, big libertarian, I think, too. Is he? And he, which makes sense. He, more of the, we just talked about uh, the new atheist, probably more of a Sam Harris, Dan, yeah. uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens kind of uh, atheist. And he, he said once, like, I don't respect a Christian who doesn't try to, to uh, evangelize me. <laughs> right. You know? So, Sometimes, like, if you really think I'm going to hell if I don't come to faith, like, what are you right, saying? You? Right. you know, I'm sure he's annoyed a little bit, but so there's something to be said about, or, or a young man, uh, before he's a man, a young boy who actually often is attracted to, um, somebody who is strict, a parent or a teacher or something like that. Um, because even though they may be strict, it shows that they care. Right. So a church that cares enough about you to that they want you to get it right is actually kind of an attractive thing more often than not. Now, I'm talking people on the surface who are like easily point the finger and go, oh, that church is so unloving or whatever. You know, I'm guessing they probably wouldn't even talk to those people. And certainly there are churches that are unloving, um, aren't we all? But there is something about a church that cares enough about its doctrine that's willing to put a line in the sand and that actually can be kind of attractive in a wishy-washy world. Not only that, but when we talk about fellowship, you practice fellowship. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you've never been to church in your life. You practice fellowship. What we mean by that is that we draw the line somewhere. Um, there are there are businesses we don't uh, we don't page uh, we don't we don't go to. Uh, there are uh, uh, friends that we don't see anymore. There are politicians that we would not uh, go to their rallies. There's all different ways where we draw lines. We can argue about where we draw the lines. That's fine. But everybody draws a line somewhere. And so, and you do it out of conviction. And so the right way to do it is, are you, are you being motivated by love? That truth in effect serves love. And what I mean by that is truth is not less important than love, but that the ultimate goal is love. And if Jesus is truth and love, then they're the same person and we don't split up Jesus. I'm pretty sure we're not supposed to do that. So if I want you to know the truth and if it's out of love, um, you know, I, that more often than not ends up either with um, a, a coming to Jesus moment or somebody maybe gets their feelings hurt, but later they realize that person actually cared about me. Right. And I think, you know, the fine line here, too, as you brought out, Mike, is this is all done in love. So there's a there's a difference between um, being divisive and recognizing divisions that have been created. So the when when we deal with church fellowship and having to break fellowship, well, um, it's clear who's caused the division. Right. There has been a 
a new teaching, an inconsistent practice, or something that has not only been introduced by someone, but held to and advocated. Um, this ought not be something that we want to have to do quickly. Um, but Paul is, uh, I mean, Jesus himself says there must be divisions among you to prove that which is true. And Paul is picking up on, on that. Uh, maybe how about last thing, verse 26? Uh, to bring about the obedience of faith, Paul says, uh, now has been disclosed uh, and through the prophetic prophets has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith um, so that this revelation of the mystery, and you mentioned mystery earlier, brings about this obedience of faith. What is the obedience of faith and how is it different than other obedience? Yeah, that's a tricky word, isn't it? Like when we see the word obedience, we 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 think follow the rules, right? Obey the rules. Uh, but I think we can rightfully see the term as we're, we're sort of under this, yep. right? And that's right there in the Greek. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, when I obey my parents, um, I, I'm not, it's not, it's me who turns it into a law, <laughs> right? Um, it's, it's me who says, I don't want to be under, I want to be above. And it's the same way we talk about the Ten Commandments. When you start thinking about the Ten Commandments as something that... Uh, protects the gift then obedience becomes something a little bit different this is a message that i'm under and it's true and and it's good for me if if i try to put above it then i see this is as an attack on my freedom so when i say the obedience of the gospel i'm saying i'm under this well when i'm under the gospel there's no obedience to in in the law sense because that's not what the gospel is about so to say that you obey the gospel you have to define what the gospel is and let that then interpret the next word obedience, right? And I think obedience is a word that can fluctuate from there. So you can't just take one word and ignore the other. You have to, you have to see what the, uh, you have to see the full context. Right? Yeah. And so the, yeah, that, the, uh, the word there, hupakuo is kind of, you know, hupo or to under, but, uh, akuo is to, to listen. And so, um, this goes back to Paul saying, faith comes through hearing, right? The obedience of faith is to give attention to, to pay attention to uh, the object of faith. Uh, and then that faith does produce Christian life. Uh, faith uh, produces works. And so I think this is this is what we mean by new obedience when our, when our um, Augsburg Confession talks about this. All right, well, what do we have for time-wise, Mike? 30 minutes. Yeah, that, that isn't bad. Um, so we'll, uh, I think that gives us Romans 15 and 16. I, I'll probably post a review video at some point. Uh, but that gives us podcast sessions for Romans 11 through 16 and uh, YouTube videos for 8 through 10. So, Mike, I thank you for joining me all for all these students. Um, let me know if you have questions. Email, we can set up a Zoom meeting, whatever. Um, but I hope everyone's doing well, and I thank you, Mike, for helping me make my way through this series. Listeners, if you listened in, I hope you enjoyed getting a little bit of a glimpse into the type of things we'd be discussing in our Romans class at Wisconsin Lutheran College. Uh, go Warriors. And uh, in the meantime, let the bird fly. <laughs>